all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason, you. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. Good morning. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. We're going to be taking your calls during the hour concerning any health care issues or other topics that you might have some questions about. The number to call is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. You can always send us an email, too, if you're not able to call. That email address is remedy at mpbonline.org. Uh, I would also like to point out that you can go to mpbonline.org and you can download uh, and listen to at your at your leisure other uh, MPB produced programs, including Southern Remedy. Just search on there for Southern Remedy. Uh, usually, we'll get those archived and within about 24 hours. You can also subscribe to the uh, iPod, uh, uh, the um, podcast um, of those if you'd like to do it that way. But uh, always lots of different ways to access that information because we do realize that you may not have the time to listen to the entire program, so you can go back and listen to those whenever you get a chance. I do want to encourage you, if you do want to call in, don't wait till be that first caller. I'm giving you permission right now to go ahead and do that. We usually have a lot more time in the first part of the hour um, than we do in the second, and I just want to give everybody an equal opportunity to do that. And again, that's any healthcare question that you would like answered. That's a question about medications or new symptom that you might have, a new diagnosis that you didn't just understand, or maybe it's not in your health care, but in the health care of somebody else. You can reach us this morning by calling one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Well, just a little bit of a catch-up with things. I know it's been a, a little bit of time since we talked uh, live on the program. Uh, you know, atrial fibrillation is a topic that comes up a good bit on our program because it is something that a lot of patients, uh, a lot of people in the state are dealing with. And this is an irregular heart rhythm that is caused by a uh, an extra site or sites in the upper two chambers of the heart that aren't quite... Uh, the electrical system's not quite working like it should. And instead of a nice rhythmic beat that has uh, an impulse and then a pause after it that is transmitted to the lower two chambers, there's an irregular uh, electrical impulses. So that's atrial fibrillation. And the fibrillation really describes what's happening in those upper two chambers. Instead of contracting that muscle when it gets that coordinated electrical response, 
they fibrillate, which is sort of quivering. If you've ever had a muscle in your leg or your arm or somewhere uh, that sort of twitches because of overuse, if it gets a little tired, sometimes they'll do that. It's the same thing that happens in the heart with atrial fibrillation. So it's sort of that quivering of the heart muscle. And it, it, the, the reason why this is a problem is if it's quivering, blood can pool in those upper two chambers and form clots, which can then break off and go down. Downstream, so uh, there's different th- uh, theories about what's best in that, whether or not to control the rhythm, which is getting it back into a regular rhythm, or the rate, uh, which is if you can control the rate, um, is that you know is that something that would be beneficial for the patient? Most of the time, if you can get them back into a regular rhythm, that's the best best thing. And then the other issue is, uh, what do you do about the risk of clots? Um, there is a scoring system like we have with a lot of different things in medicine. And depending on your risk factors for clotting, uh, that really determines whether or not a person would need anticoagulation to try to prevent those. But there are other things out there. I know a lot of patients now have had the Watchman procedure. So this is a, uh, a, a way to plug up one of those little outpocketings on the left atrium. Uh, It's called the left atrial appendage, and if you Google this just to look at it, on the heart, it's just an extra little cavity that sort of out pockets uh, its little pouch uh, connected to to the left atrium. And this is one of the most common places with atrial fibrillation that you can develop a clot. So this little device, and there's a couple of others, too, that are out there, like the Amplatzer and the Wavecrest. Uh, but basically, it sort of plugs that left atrial appendage, and it's over time, it sort of seals off to decrease your risk of clotting. Um, and uh, it can also help you know, with, with the management of those clots. Blood thinners are, are uh, depending on what you're using, uh, whether it's uh, you know something like Coumadin, uh, which can have uh, be very uh, difficult to control in some patients to get them at the exact amount of anticoagulation so that they're not clotting too much, but also not too thin on their blood, uh, which would cause increased risk of bleeding. So uh, something to check out. There is some risk with that. A lot of people say, well, you know, I don't really feel it. They told me I had uh, AFib, so what's the big deal? Uh, The big deal, again, are those clots that can break off and go downstream, and usually that means a clot to the brain, which is the first uh, little turn off of the highway system there coming out of the heart. Uh, and uh, certainly a stroke is not something you want uh, to get if you can avoid it. So uh, that's one of the main reasons why you need to take that seriously. So if you're having an irregular heartbeat, always a good idea to get checked out very quickly about that because that can be a very serious thing. Hey, Dr. Jimmy. Uh Uh-huh. Go ahead, Kevin. Good morning. We have got our first caller on the line, so why don't we say good morning to Mike, who's called in from Memphis. All right, Mike, good morning to you. What's your question this morning? Yes, I have a, um, I started out with a cold, oh, two, two and a half weeks ago, my wife and I both, uh, and hers has gone away. Mine seemed to go away at the same time, but then it came, it morphed back, and I think it's, it turned into a sinus infection. Mm-hmm. I called my uh, general pro- practitioner. I left a message. They called me back. I asked if um, I could get a prescription for antibiotic for the sinus infection, and they told me they wanted me to have. I had already had a COVID test. They told me that I should get another one, which I did. Um, 
both came back negative. So my, I guess my question is, will a sinus infection go away on its own if it's not treated with an antibiotic? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so the sinuses, you know, are these little uh, pockets in the skull, and they're at different places. There's the maxillary sinuses, the uh, sphenoid sinuses, the ethmoid sinuses, frontal sinuses. And nobody really knows why we have these. It's probably uh, the, the skull is probably designed with these to decrease the weight of it. Um, you know, they tend to fill with air or fluid. There are cells in there that produce this fluid that normally drains out into the nasal passages and down the back of the throat. What happens with uh, sort of a sinus infection, usually the first thing that happens is you get sort of a viral illness, like a cold. Um, and that causes, you know, all the different symptoms of that with the stuffy nose. That's all those linings in the nasal passages and the sinuses, they swell up. So they get mm -hmm. edematous and they have more fluid there. Well, what happens when that, if it goes on for a long time and it doesn't resolve, basically it clogs up that, that um, drainage system from the sinuses and then you can get bacterial overgrowth. You know, there's bacteria that you can culture from those sinuses if you go up in there with like an ENT wood to sort of drain them out. But um, normally with a normal flow pattern of that draining out, it doesn't cause any problems. But if you plug up that drainage system, like what, what happens when you get a viral infection, then you can run into some problems. And that's usually why most physicians, if you look at the guidelines, it says anywhere from about 7 to 14 days. If you continue to have symptoms past that, then it's okay to start an antibiotic to try to treat that bacterial overgrowth. Now, back to your question, can this resolve without doing anything? Sure, it can. And for a lot of people, you can avoid antibiotics by doing sort of a nasal clean-out. So that's one of the things I tell my patients is, particularly if in there, they're in that sort of 7- to 14-day period, I say, hey, if you haven't already done this, get you a good nasal saline wash, whether that's a neti pot or, or another system that you use. Uh, make sure you're washing out those nasal cavities. And then if you use a nasal steroid, a lot of times that will decrease the, the inflammation around those drainage uh, systems coming out of those, particularly in the in the frontal and maxillary sinuses. And uh, that alone sometimes can clear up the problem. So a lot of times mm -hmm. you'll have a resolution in symptoms uh, and can avoid those antibiotics. Um, antibiotics yeah. seem to work, but usually they don't. You know, if you use them early, I know a lot of people will say, well, I feel like I'm getting a sinus infection. I've only had symptoms two to three days. In that case, that it, it's been shown that antibiotics don't work any better than waiting and doing some of those other things you know, seven to to, ten, to 14 days afterwards. So um, okay. so it can resolve on its own, and it has to do with that drainage system. So right now I'm, I'm able to, at least during the day, breathe easily through my nose, mm -hmm. but I have a constant um, drainage. I have to constantly blow my nose, and it's a clear liquid. And I don't know if that's a difference between what you would expect from a sinus infection or just a prolonged cold. Yeah, it's it, you know people make a big words, deal about clear, the but the, it's yeah the, about the so. color of it and whether it's clear or not. And it, it is true that you know a sinus infection that's producing a 
pure what we call pure lint, which is sort of that that really thick yellowish greenish you know even whitish it's just pus basically um yeah. that's filled with bacteria and white blood cells yeah if you if I look in the nose and I see that coming out uh particularly of those sinuses uh where they drain then that and they have the symptoms for that long that's when I would treat them now if it's clear oh. it may not be that you could still have a a sinus infection going on that's just not draining out appropriately but if it's okay. just at night and not particularly in the day, I may try some of these other things that I've just mentioned about, you know, washing it out, uh, doing yeah. that first. And that sort of gets all that layer of mucus out of the way. And then just doing like a topical steroid, you can get that over the counter, Flonase, Nasonex, or the generic uh, equivalents of those. Um, okay. One spray in each nostril at night, a lot of times you can alleviate those. And right now, all throughout the South, we've got ragweed and uh, lots of other fall grass <laughs> pollens. It's been really dry. Um, mm-hmm. You know, pollen counts are pretty high right now, and that that may be contributing to it as well. Okay, great. Well, I, I definitely will try the other two uh, suggestions before I uh, try to reach out to the to the physician again, and hopefully that'll clear this up for me. So I appreciate your help uh, this morning. Oh, you're welcome, Mike. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Thanks for listening to the original Southern Remedy podcast. You can get your medical question answered by sending an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. For a regular dose of medical information, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. The doctor is always in on the original Southern Remedy. Join us each week for Everyday Tech on MPB Think Radio. We have an IT expert, a computer repair ace, and we troubleshoot your problems on the phones as well. Everyday Tech, Wednesdays at 10 on MPB Think Radio. Download the podcast now or listen on YouTube on the MPB Think Radio channel. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. Dr. Jimmy with you this morning, trying to answer your questions about any kind of health care issue that you might have. The number to call is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Or you can send an email to remedy at MPB online. Already had a great question about sinus problems and allergies. I got a, a text from my friend Josh that says, Goldenrod is the devil, and I would agree with that. Like, it is a nasty thing. So uh, certainly we live in a place that is unfortunately number one in a lot of, of things and uh, one of the allergy capitals of the world. Uh, if you you know look at all the different uh, allergens and the weather patterns that sort of influence that, certainly uh, Mississippi in the south is uh, right there uh, at ground zero. So uh, a lot of people say, you know, I, I moved here and I hadn't really experienced that. Usually it takes about two to three years for the body to, to have develop an allergy to think something, particularly if it's seasonal like that. So if it's something in your home, it may be a little bit easier, the quicker. But um, yeah, if it's, uh, if it's any of those pollens out there, whether it's tree pollens in the spring or grasses throughout the summer and fall, um, that certainly it can take uh, it can take a while to to uh, um, to to develop. So just something to think about. 
Dr. Jimmy? Yes, sir. We have got another caller on the line. So this time we're going to say good morning to Dan from Columbus. All right. Good morning, Dan. Thank you for calling. Hey, uh, good morning. Question, question for you. I developed, uh, they call it, a, I guess, a hammer toe. And when I saw the doctor, he said the joint shot as well. Um, he said that surgery is my only option. So I guess if you could kind of weigh in on, uh, you know, what may cause it and uh, it is the <laughs> what he's talking about, the right way to go, and uh, we'll come back. Yeah, so hammer toe is one of those things that can be a huge problem. Um, certainly anything that involves our feet um, that, uh, you know, that uh, that because you walk on them so much, that can be something that can, you know, cause a lot of problems. Um, anything in the forefoot, so that's like at the end of the foot, that's that's sort of something that somebody needs to evaluate. Well, most of the time, you know, that's uh, it's mo- one of the most common places for um, for foot pain is in that first that that uh, distal part of the foot, the the towards the toes. Um, now, hammer toe, a lot of that is from. It's not necessarily a trauma to that area, but it's repetitive trauma because of the space. And you can have anatomically, everybody's put together a little bit differently. I think everybody realizes that. So one thing doesn't necessarily fit somebody else. Just like we have shorter people and taller people, the same thing with your feet. Uh, Wider feet don't necessarily fit in smaller, narrower shoes. So you do have to pay attention to that. If there is a problem over time, though, with a narrow foot space, particularly in that toe box area, you can develop a hammer toe, particularly also if you're if you're predisposed to do that. And it can get to the point where surgery might be the only issue. The biggest thing I would say is make sure you're going to somebody that has a lot of experiences with this. There are some extra training, particularly for orthopedic surgeons and sports medicine uh, individuals that do have some training and make sure that just because they're an orthopedic surgeon that you're going to doesn't necessarily mean that they're the best person for that foot. So if it's somebody, you know, that, that is an orthopedic surgeon, I would say, look, do you have expertise in this area or do you sort of, is this sort of outside your norm? And again, because the foot and the ankle are very complex, and you really need somebody that knows how to do that, that does a large volume of those. Now, surgery is not necessarily a quick fix to this. Um, if you haven't already, I would you know, at least ask them about some options about orthotics or different types of shoes that you might can try that might help that pain uh, to relieve to relieve that to the point where you can walk and, and a decrease the amount of pain that you're having or discomfort. And if you have already tried that, then surgery may be the last thing there. Um, and the toe is a, you know, it's a, it's, it's a complex joint on how you walk. So um, the surgery is going to have a, a, you know, fairly lengthy recovery time and physical therapy after that. So all of those things I would talk to them about. But it's not a bad idea to get a second opinion from somebody who does specialize in the feet. Okay, great. Thanks. All right, Dan. Good luck to you there. This is Southern Remedy. The number to call is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. We do have another caller on the line, Dr. Jimmy. Now we're going to say good morning to Peter in Mobile. Good morning, Peter. How's things down south? 
Oh, uh, just fine. Getting ready for another storm. Uh, Dr. <laughs> Jimmy, thank, thank you for taking my call. Uh, my question, uh, you know, basically, I'd like you to review a little bit more about uh, risk factors for taking aspirin. Uh, my own situation, I'm 70 now, but I had a TIA 20 years ago when I was 50. Uh, to best of my knowledge, I haven't had another one. Uh, it was a waking uh, type stroke, uh, recovered completely. Been on aspirin now for uh, daily for 20 years, uh, and uh, the only causative factor that they may have found about the TIA was I do have a, a PFO, a small hole in the heart. Uh, so now new recommendations come out that if you're not at risk, uh, don't be taking aspirin anymore. And I've been concerned that they're saying as you age, uh, and I am 70 now, that you're, you may be heading towards a bleeding type stroke in trying to prevent another clotting type stroke that, that cleared itself. Uh, and yeah. I'm a bit confused as to what questions I should be asking my own doctor about testing my situation uh, as to whether I should stay on aspirin or not. Yeah. Yeah, those are excellent questions. You know, aspirin, one of the best medications that was ever developed, in my opinion. I mean, it's been used so much, particularly for cardiovascular disease and um, but it does have side effects, and bleeding is is the biggest one. That can be bleeding really anywhere in the body, but the most common places are in the GI tract, um, either upper or lower. Um, it's not just from a direct effect, but it, it you know it inhibits platelets from sticking together, which is why it's useful with cardiovascular disease. The the sticky area um, is when you have somebody that doesn't quite have a huge risk, like you had massive heart attack or you have um, heart failure or, uh, you know, different things that put you at a big risk of having a clot somewhere, whether that's in the brain or elsewhere, um, versus somebody who maybe has no problems and you're trying to prevent a heart attack or a stroke that has never happened yet. Um, one thing I, w I would add, did you have that PFO, that, that patent foramen of valley? This is a hole between the upper two chambers of the heart for everybody who doesn't know about that. Did you have that repaired? Uh, no, I liked it not to because as I was reading the literature, there there were certainly risks involved with that procedure. And, and not having had another uh, TIA, uh, in, uh, I've been happy with just the aspirin. I didn't see why I should add more risk with uh Sure. Yeah. The whole plug. Right. And then, are you on a full dose aspirin, a 325 or the the 81? I've just been taking the 81. Yeah. I I think in your case, because of that PFO still being there, and theoretically at least, it is a small risk of having. Uh, and the risk there is if you do have a clot that develops and. It doesn't have to develop in the heart, so it can, you know, develop in the lower extremities, um, you know, prolonged driving or sitting or inactivity or surgeries that keep you up in the bed. All those things can be a source of that. That clot then breaks off. It travels upstream, upstreamed back to the heart. Uh, once it gets to the heart, if you have a PFO, it can travel from the right side of the heart to the left side of the heart, and then it gets ejected out and can cause a stroke. So
So aspirin, in your case, I think is probably a good idea. I don't think uh, that a 81 is probably going to have that much effect. If you haven't, and in particularly if you've been taking it for 20 years, that's a pretty low risk. If you had told me that you didn't have the PFO or didn't have the TIA, I would say it's probably not worth it based on the most recent studies. But in your case, you know, it's it's always sort of a a, a balance. Uh, you know, I always think of a scale, an old timey scale where you have, you know, uh, you're, where you're you're measuring one thing versus the other. So you always have to balance the risk versus the benefit. I think in your case, the benefits probably outweighs the risk at this point, particularly with the 81 milligram dose aspirin. So. Uh, my recommendation would be to keep taking it at this point. I think your risk of bleeding is pretty low, um, and uh, certainly you've been doing well for so long. Uh, yes, I have. Um, exercise, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, can you tell me, uh, is there now some mounting evidence, though, that as people age and have been taking aspirin that they are seeing more bleeding-type uh, strokes, Um or what, what what really caused the uh, alert, the warning to come out recently? Uh, so, yeah, so basically they were seeing uh, more bleeding uh, in individuals who were on long-term aspirin therapy. It's, it's not necessarily an increased risk of bleeding strokes as you age. That's one of the risks, certainly. But um, falls in the elderly are a big cause. So in, internal head, you know, bleeding within the skull uh, and around or in the brain, if you have a fall, because falls are more common in elderly, uh, that's one of the risks. Uh, internal bleeding, certainly GI bleeding that we mentioned. Um, and as you gain more, you know, a lot of people, you, the usual thing is you develop other medical problems as you get older. But uh, And as you get more of those, it can, in some instances, uh, increase your risk of bleeding. But there's not really something that, you know, that I know of, any evidence to say as you get older, there's a increased risk of, of the bleeding-type strokes rather than the embolic strokes. Embolic strokes are still and that's a clot embolic uh, strokes, that they're still much more common than the bleeding strokes. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Thanks for listening to the original Southern Remedy podcast. You can get your medical question answered by sending an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. For a regular dose of medical information, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. The doctor is always in on the original Southern Remedy. contractor ever tell you the price of something and it sounds so high you think eh, maybe I'll try it myself. Some jobs just aren't that difficult and yes you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things listen to Fix It 101 podcast everywhere. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics. 
and got some great calls so far for this hour. The number to call is one eight seven seven MPB ring. That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Uh, any kind of healthcare issue doesn't have to be what somebody else was talking about. Uh, we've all got our own own healthcare sort of uh, patterns and issues. So uh, call in now with yours, or maybe it's somebody in your family that you want to ask some questions about. We would welcome that as well. And we do have another caller on the line. We're going to Oxford next. Major is on the line. Good morning, Major. How's it going? Fine. How are you, sir? Good. Uh, what? I never hear any anyone talking about hemorrhoids. Now I know of a couple of people that said they had a little slight or uh, severe hemorrhoid uh, issues, and uh, I, I I've never heard anybody, you know, come up say anything concerning it or say what to cause it or what would help it or what needs yeah. to be done or what. Yeah, yeah. Well, the reason you probably haven't heard that a whole lot, Major, is people don't like to talk about that area very much. So (laughs) it doesn't mean it's not there and people don't have it. It probably means that they're not really comfortable with talking about it. That's one of those things that I'm sure a lot of people are like, yeah, yeah, I got those, but I don't want to call in about that. But it is common. Um, You know, it's, it's something that a lot of people deal with. It can cause a lot of discomfort. Uh, so basically, a hemorrhoid is, you know, we, we have all these blood vessels in our GI tract. And uh, even, you know, at the opening in the rectum and the anus right there, uh, there's a lot of blood vessels that, that are in that area. And basically, a hemorrhoid is when you have an enlargement of those blood vessels. And they can be very uncomfortable. It causes a lot of of uh, burning sensation uh, around that area. Um, it can be painful, in, particularly if you're sitting for long periods of time or you're straining to get you know a stool out. Um, they can also bleed, so they can rupture um, and uh, bleed in the stool. A lot of people will present and say, "Hey, I've got bleeding," uh, and it turns out to be hemorrhoids. They can be in different places, so that sometimes you'll hear them call, called internal hemorrhoids and external hemorrhoids, and that just that just um, is is a description of where they are, right around the rectum or anus. So if they're if they're uh, mild, there are a lot of um, there's a lot of things that you can do. The topical steroids are one. So things like Anusol. They've been used pretty successfully to treat those, and basically that it's a steroid that it that goes up into that area in your rectum right where those hemorrhoids are, and over time that can cause a, a decrease in, in inflammation of those tissues. It, does, it usually doesn't make them go away completely, but it does treat them enough to where you can, you can uh, not have all the symptoms it. of it. And well, yeah, deal with it. Where well, you can live with them. That's right. They're they're your friends that you don't want. Um, <laughs> now, if they're big enough and they cause some problems, actually, they can. Uh, you know, the, either the GI doctors or uh, a surgeon can just like they do when they do a colonoscopy can go up in there and there's different ways that they can treat it. They can uh, they can put a little band around those blood vessels and then they fall off uh, and and don't cause as many problems. Um, And then helping to prevent them is a big thing. So having lots of 
with fiber in your diet so that you have soft stools and not constipation, that's that can be one thing that can help prevent them. They tend to run in families, though. So if you ask around in the family, you may not even know that people within your own family have them because, again, this is not an area that people like to talk about. Um, but, you know, a lot of times people say, oh, yeah, yeah, that, that my dad had that, my mom had that, I have it too. So um, that just sort of puts you at, at a predisposition. But, yeah, the topical stuff like the Anusol can work. Um, if that's not working, I would say to go to either you know, or just your, your uh, regular doctor. They may can refer you to a surgeon or a GI specialist, and they can sometimes uh, take care of those without uh, too many problems. Thank you, sir. All right. Yep. We do have lots of different things that uh, that stick with us like that, particularly as you get older. And it, that's, you know, hemorrhoids, you don't hear as much. You can have them when you're younger, but usually that's something that develops over decades. This is Southern Remedy. The number to call is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Or you can send an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. Uh, speaking of email, so I got a one recently about um, expiration dates on medications, and basically the uh, the sender said uh, that they were taking a calcium supplement, which was recommended by their physician for osteoporosis, uh, but they noticed that it had an expiration of uh, earlier this year. Was that something that was safe to take? So expiration dates are, are a number of reasons uh, are put on medications and, and over-the-counter supplements just like they are for foods. So, you know, there's a recommended expiration date that you're not supposed to use that after a period of time. So a patient will will frequently call in and say, you know, is this good or is this good to take? You know, I, I, or if it's, you know, in an after-hours conversation, if they're saying, hey, I had this pain medication, is it safe to take that? Generally speaking, if it is a gel or a liquid, uh, like eye drops, for instance, that are prescription or or even non-prescription, or if it's a gel, uh, I would really stick to that expiration date. For solid tablets uh, and pills, you, you can, actually a lot of those are good. It is recommended not to take them after the expiration date, but in actuality, they're actually pretty good as long as they've been stored safely. So even within that expiration date timeline, if you have, say, Tylenol and you keep it in your car and the car heats up like it does here in the South during the summer months, um, if it's just sort of laying out and it's getting hot like that, it may be worthless, even if it's before that expiration date. Just because all of those, that compound uh, in that medication, it'll break down with heat, with excessive heat. And you'll notice if you read the fine print, it does have, you know, sort of a temperature range in there too. And it can get really hot in cars in the summer. I mean, excess of 120 degrees. So you do want to pay attention to that. Or if it's left out in sunlight. So sunlight, UV light can break down those compounds as well. But there are some other medications, particularly if it's a week, even a month uh, out of date, it's probably still okay to take. It's not a bad idea to ask your pharmacist or your physician about that, though, before you do it. So in this case, calcium, uh, mostly that's calcium carbonate, calcium citrate, very stable over time not going to really break down um, after that expiration date. The reason for having those, uh, even in, in uh, you know, over-the-counter medications like that, is if there is a problem, 
that is identified later in the manufacturing process or distribution and they need to pull that, it's easier to pull those off the shelf um, with those with those expiration dates like they are. So you don't keep something there for extended periods of time. But um, it really sort of depends on that. And again, if it's an eye drop and it's one day past that expiration date, I would stick with it because that's much more likely to break down over time uh, and much less stable than some of those uh, some of those solid medications like pills or tablets. Dr. Jimmy, a little bit of a follow-up. You mentioned uh, heat and light. Any other tips you could give us on safely storing our medications? Yeah, so uh, you know, definitely you want to keep it uh, in a you know in a cabinet is probably the best thing where you don't you know have that light or heat uh, or excessive uh, range of of temperatures. Usually, cold is not going to break it down as long as it's not wet. You do want to keep them dry as well, so it doesn't need to be in a you know in a moist uh, uh, condition. I know a lot of people will call in and say, "Hey, my medication got wet. Can I still take it?" And usually at that point, I'll say, "Nah," because you know, they're sort of designed once they get in the body and the stomach, once they get wet, they start to, to uh, disperse and break down. Um, and, of course, safety, even with things that you wouldn't think about, like we have kids to come in a lot, and, you know, some medications look exactly like candy. And uh, the kids don't understand that. They can take that. Uh, even if you have it, if you think it's out of reach, Toddlers are incredible acrobats, and they have the ability to uh, climb all over things and get to, you know, way up there out of reach. So make sure it's in a locked cabinet is probably the best thing. Uh, don't mix and match medications. So a lot of people, you know, you open up a prescription bottle and they in clinic, and they, they may have two or three different tablets in there. Not a good idea. Uh, you, certainly you can, you can do things like... Um, uh, pill packs that are that are packed for the week uh, or even longer periods of time, and that's okay to do it that way. But usually putting it in a bottle that's labeled with something else, that's probably not a good idea, even if you know what it is. Um, so having clear uh, instructions about those is, is another thing. So those are just some, some general principles. I usually tell patients that it's probably a good idea to do that. And don't share your medication with somebody else. It may be working fine for you. Uh, it may be causing no problems, and you may have taken it for 20 years. If you give that medication to somebody else, though, there may be some significant health problems that they have or differences uh, with allergies or other very good reasons why they're not taking that medication, and they could have some serious harm from do it, from taking it. So uh, stick with your own medication. If it's working for you, that's fine to tell somebody else about that, but uh, don't share that with them. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Thanks for listening to the original Southern Remedy podcast. You can get your medical question answered by sending an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. For a regular dose of medical information, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. The doctor is always in on the original Southern Remedy. Hey, this is Larry Morrissey with the Mississippi Arts Commission. I'm one of the hosts of the Mississippi Arts Hour, the arts interview show on Think Radio. We talk with visual artists, musicians, writers, as well as people who help bring the arts to their communities. We hear about how each artist learned their craft and get some insight into their creative process. You can hear the Arts Hour every Sunday at 5 p.m. on Think Radio. 
or listen anytime by subscribing to the show through your favorite podcasting app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. Dr. Jimmy with you this morning answering your questions and calls about all kinds of good things, even things that we don't necessarily want to talk a whole lot about. They're still bothering us, so I, I'm glad that you bring those things up, too. The number to call is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four, or send an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. We have got Sue on the line from Beaumont next. All right. Good morning, Sue. How are you doing this morning? Good morning. How are you? I, I'd, I'd like to make a comment about the, the man with the hemorrhoid problem. Yeah. I, I worked home health for years, and I can tell you, <laughs> I can tell you one thing that the bowel problems are a big deal with people who are elderly. It, it, yeah. They don't like to talk about it, but uh, it, I found that the best thing it, for them to get some relief is to. Even the, like the guy with hemorrhoids, is to you. You've got to eat some fiber and fiber like oatmeal. Oatmeal is not only good fiber, but it, it it has a slick component, almost like the insides of an okra. You know, it's got that slickness to it. And and if they take if they eat some oatmeal and eat them, um, and take a um, a, bowel, a stool softener pill every day, that helps too. Because like Grandma used to take black drought. I haven't seen any black drought on the market for years. It was a lax do that you know all old people took and or castor oil or something, you are horrendous like that, but I, I just don't, and old people are not very active, and, and activity, when you when you slow down and you're sitting around a lot, you, you just get clogged up. Right, I, right. I feel so sorry for elderly people, because that, that's something they don't want to talk about, but it's something that almost every elderly person I ever dealt with had problems with their bowels. <laughs> yeah, no, you're right, and um, if you, uh, you know, it's, it's it's uh it's a very true thing that um, I I sort of at, try to ask that in my elderly patients. Everything you said is great, uh, Sue, and and something that I would advocate. Sometimes changing how you eat can help in the certain types of foods that you eat. Um, I didn't mention sitz baths; that can help a little bit too. Uh, just thought about that while you were talking. Um, but the prevention part of it and having those regular bowel movements that are soft, formed but soft. Uh, can certainly help. And the fiber, you know, there's two different types of fiber. There's a soluble fiber, and that's something that you can absorb, and insoluble fiber. You need both of those, but, you know, really to get things moving, the insoluble fiber, and I tell people it 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 is definitely like oatmeal. You said anything you have to, if it's raw, too, if you chew it up more, if it's more stringy, that has that insoluble fiber, and it's that cellulose and plants and and fruits, uh, vegetables, those kinds of things. So I, I, I think you're dead on with that. I, it is something that that may not be talked about, uh, but it sure can ruin your day. Uh, and and changing what you eat, the physical activity you mentioned is equally in, important. The more you move, the more your bowels are going to be more active like that. Um, and I, I tell you, if you can improve that part of somebody's life, uh, they are very appreciative um, because it can just be miserable. Yes, they are. Well, thank you. Yes, ma'am. Thank you for calling. You have a great day. Dr. Jimmy, we've got, I think, time for one final call, so we'll go to Roger in Florence. Good morning, Roger. Thank you for calling this morning. Well, good morning to you. Thank you again. I 
repeat what people say. We really appreciate you doing the uh, all oh, you're welcome. Yeah, uh, my question has to do with aspartame. I very carefully look at labels, and I've noticed in some products, I guess I shouldn't mention products, but they're the same brand will have about three different varieties of its own self with similar names, and they keep changing the labels so it's hard to tell. But you really find that. You notice on one particular, the most popular soft drink products in the world, they're, they're, they're regular product is one thing, and then they have two or three others, and one of them has aspartame listed third in the series of ingredients, mm-hmm. and one of them has it listed second. So I always buy the one that has it listed third, thinking, well, at least I'm monitoring my aspartame. But just, would you please talk about aspartame, the various threats and dangers, and if the quantitative aspect is of any consideration at all? Yeah. Yeah. So aspartame is one of those artificial sweeteners that you see. There's a long list of them. You know, there's some newer ones out there like stevia is a plant-based one. Uh, Saccharin is an older one too, sucralose. But aspartame is probably the one that's that's the majority of of artificial sweeteners out there. Um, Now, the listing, as you mentioned, is important because that tells you of the total weight or volume of that product, it's listed by, you know, the the first thing is the most common ingredient in, in there. So if it's, you know, if it's if it's sugar is your is your your first or second one, that's got more of that in it. So I think the way that you're sort of weighing that out to see if it's, you know, first or second or third, uh it's certainly not going to be you, you can't really make an apples to oranges comparison with other sweeteners that way. But you certainly, within you know a general estimation, you can say, okay, well, that's the third most common ingredient. That might be less of it there. Um, and it may, some of them, actually tell you how much aspartame. Now, the, the problem with aspartame is it was, you know, there's, there's certainly a lot of uh, um, um, concern in higher doses that it can cause all kinds of things, and, you know, including cancer. I will say that's those were in animals, and it's like fat. You'd have to have like a whole bucket of aspartame to have the same amount of it. Um, I, you know, certainly uh, it, if it can help you eat less sugar, that's great. And I think the least amount of it and that you can take is good. You may want to also, you know, it's really a taste thing, though. Like some other people will say, you know, I just, I've tried stevia, I've tried these other things, and it just does not taste well. And aspartame, you know, tastes a little bit better. But I think limiting the amount, as you mentioned, is probably the biggest things. And looking at those at those consumer labels, the food labels, is important, too, just because it you may not know what's in there. It's always a good thing, particularly with the the food preparations we have these days to to look at that and sort of get a good estimation of what's in there uh even in things that aren't added i mean that's it's easy if you have it you know that you can scoop it and put it in your coffee or whatever else but it's in a lot of other things cereals yogurt gelatin uh anything that says sugar free is going to have something like that in it so uh, i think it's a good idea to research those like you just said and to try to come up with something that's the least amount of that cuz um uh, it's 
Some people do eat a lot of it, but most of the of the bad side effects like cancer were in huge amounts in animals. So um, it's not as it's never been really proven in adults uh, in in a, you know in um, uh, humans to do that, but it is a concern. What I read about was liver damage. Yeah, and if we you eat a lot of it, you, that's a possibility certainly. Um, and again, you know, it's you, you definitely want to limit that as much as possible. And if you can do away with it, um, that's great. Uh, it's certainly natural. I know people that use stevia, the plant, and put that in there, and that's perfectly fine. It doesn't have any kind of negative side effects with it. It's just not as sweet. Yeah. Thanks for listening to this MPB Think Radio podcast. MPB depends on support from listeners, so if you can, please contribute today at mpbonline.org. Hi, I'm Ryder Taff, Portfolio Manager at New Perspectives, a fee-only financial advisory and co-host of Money Talks. Each week, we take your personal finance questions and tell you about a money topic we hope you find helpful. Money Talks can be heard Tuesdays at 9 a.m. on MPB Think Radio. Podcasts can be found on our website, money.mpbonline.org, or on your smart devices podcasting platform. 